Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and the sexual abuse of minors that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was an eerily quiet morning in Pittsburgh. Security guard Bob Schneider circled the grounds of the Allegheny County Sewage Treatment Plant. Schneider's rounds were normally a routine affair, but that morning he was on high alert. Around noon the day before, a dead body had been pulled from the river waters surrounding the plant. The police were perplexed by the scene. There was no obvious explanation for why the man would have entered the sludgy waters. He certainly wasn't dressed for a swim. When his body was discovered, he wore heavy boots, work clothes, a hard hat with a flashlight, and a battery pack attached to his waist. There were no reports of missing workmen from the plant. Nobody knew where the body had come from. It was an odd mystery, one that rattled the plant workers. But Schneider tried not to let it distract him. He continued scanning the area. But as he reached the banks of the Ohio River, he saw something that made his blood run cold. Another body was floating in the water, a dead woman. Robert could see odd symbols on her body, strange tattoos, including a mark that looked like a swastika. But her clothing is what caught Robert's attention. Like the man, she too was wearing a hard hat with a flashlight, a battery pack, and heavy work clothing. Clearly, the man and the woman had been working together. They were part of the same bizarre plot, and it had gotten both of them killed. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, in a one-part episode, we'll talk about a man named George Fagley and his devoted circle of followers who called themselves the Neo-American Church. In the early 1970s, George spread his teachings on astrology and the occult. He wanted people to view him as an educator and an intellectual. Instead, he left a legacy of violence and abuse that scarred his community for decades. George was sent to prison in 1976 for his crimes, but his imprisonment didn't put a stop to the cult's activity. It was only the beginning. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. 
Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There are few public details about George Fagley's childhood, but we know he was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on June 23, 1940. And at some point in his early years, his family relocated to Harrisburg, about 100 miles west of Philly. There, he attended John Harris High School. Though he was an intelligent person with a high IQ, he didn't pursue higher education after graduating. It may be that he was too devoted to his girlfriend, Joette, to think about college. The teenage couple married young and went on to have three children. To support his growing family, George found work at a local department store. After several years of savings, he earned enough to purchase a house on Ridgeview Drive in Harrisburg. George worked each day at his unglamorous job and returned home each evening to his quiet residential street. There was nothing remarkable about his life. He could have fit the description of any other man in his neighborhood. But George didn't consider himself an ordinary man. He claimed that he was a descendant of the von Hohenzollern family, a German royal dynasty that dates back to the 11th century. Perhaps this belief in his noble lineage gave George a sense of superiority over others. He seemed convinced that he was destined for greatness, that his success was written in the stars. These grandiose delusions were probably a comforting coping mechanism for a young man whose real-life accomplishments failed to meet his expectations. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to psychiatrist Michael Garrett, some individuals, particularly those who experience psychosis early in life, use grandiose delusions to maintain their self-esteem. He writes, Unable to achieve ordinary successes in love and work, they resort to delusional narratives in lieu of more expectable markers of self-esteem. Furthermore, Garrett says that delusions, if unchallenged, may last a lifetime. George's belief in his royal bloodline was only the beginning. He also developed a fascination with astronomy and astrology, a hobby he shared with his family. One of his neighbors recalled that George would sometimes paint black patterns on his children's bodies. He grew symbols on their stomachs representing the stars and planets, as if to mark his family's place in the universe. But George's grand vision for his life didn't match with reality. By the 1960s, he was still working in retail, and his marriage was faltering. It wasn't just George's unconventional beliefs that put a strain on the relationship. George had a violent side that he couldn't seem to control. According to one of George's wife's friends, once during a fight, George smashed his wife's head through a closet door. Joette didn't press charges, but they did eventually divorce. George didn't remain single for long. In 1968, the 27-year-old married his second wife, 21-year-old Sandra Johnston, who worked for the local Department of Education. In Sandra, George found a receptive listener, ready and willing to accept all of his grandiose ideas and astrological beliefs. With her at his side, George forged a new identity. Though he only had a high school diploma, he envisioned himself as an enlightened scholar, And so, he decided to remake himself into one. 
George started collecting whatever used and rare books he could get his hands on, and he made a living by selling them. To go with his new profession, he decided to adopt a more impressive-sounding name, one that conveyed a certain intellectual prowess. He called himself Dr. G.G. Stocktay, later claiming to have received a Ph.D. from the church that he founded. He described himself as a historian, lecturer, and tutor, George began making appearances as a guest speaker at small gatherings around Harrisburg. He gave lectures on the history of witchcraft, the occult, and astrology. He also hosted events at libraries and bookstores to showcase his growing book collection and promote sales. He was an eccentric. In a statement to the Pittsburgh Press, one local police officer remarked, there was some kind of strangeness about him. He had these strange eyes. A neighbor recalled that George always dressed in black and even drove a black car. But despite his quirks, George was also described as charismatic, disarming, and hypnotic. He always seemed to find a few listeners curious to hear what he had to say. Some were even willing to pay to hear his thoughts. George and Sandra earned enough from their book and lecture business to purchase a three-story house at 1316 Derry Street in Harrisburg. With an increased income and interest, George began printing tarot cards, calendars, newsletters, and illustrations for sale. He also published several books, selling them when he could. George wrote dozens of texts about exploring human sexuality and erotica, one of his favorite subjects. But he produced more scholarly work as well. He wrote extensively about the local history of Dauphin County, where Harrisburg was located. But beyond marketing himself as a historian and scholar, George wanted to be seen as a moral authority figure. Around this time, he joined a religious group called the Pennsylvania Assembly. According to George, the group wasn't named after the city. Rather, the name referenced the Greek word for brotherly love. In a later interview with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, George described the group's values as a convenient Greek rendering of another idea. We care, we are concerned, we are one. Beyond this philosophy of fraternity, George's version of the sect believed that its members were direct descendants of the tribe of Levi, the priestly caste of Israel described in the Torah. They built their belief system around select passages from the book of Leviticus, though the group denied any affiliation with modern-day Judaism. After joining the Philadelphia Assembly, George blended their biblical teachings with his astrological theories and occultist principles. He incorporated customs from the book of Leviticus in his daily life, including laws related to high holy days and kosher food preparation. He used zodiac signs and horoscopes to interpret the world and make predictions. He also promoted sexual activity as a central feature of his new religious practice, claiming that orgasm was the closest a person could get to reaching God. As he explained to a devoted few who came to listen to him and were his first followers, we are exhorted to be fruitful and multiply, but also to enjoy ourselves. Once George had created this new philosophy, he needed a fresh brand for it, outside the Philadelphia Assembly. In 1971, 31-year-old George ran into a friend who was selling certificates on behalf of the Neo-American Church, a religious group founded in the 1960s, centered on the use of psychedelic drugs. George had no real association with this psychedelic religion, but for the price of $5, he was able to purchase a certificate granting him the title of bishop within the Neo-American Church. George knew that the certification didn't grant him any real authority. 
He admitted that he viewed it as kind of a joke. But he also understood that others might see it differently. That $5 piece of paper made it easier for George to promote himself as a legitimate expert on religious and philosophical matters. Making the most of his new bishop title, George filed articles of incorporation for a new for-profit organization. Since the bishop's certificate was listed under the Neo-American Church, George decided to borrow the same name for his own company. From then on, he operated his publishing business under this new entity. George's business rapidly became a success. In the fall of 1971, he leased a storefront in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles southeast of Harrisburg. From there, he peddled items from his book collection, which had grown to over 60,000 volumes. George continued to give lectures and lead discussions on the teachings of his Neo-American church from his home on Derry Street. He connected with people who felt like something was missing from their lives, people who were searching for answers. He told them that he had a direct link to God. If they listened to him, they too could discover the secrets of the universe. In the early 1970s, some individuals were so taken by the message that they came to live with George and Sandra at their home. This included a young filmmaker named John Pollard. With Pollard in their ranks, the group gained a new source of income. Besides selling books and prints, they also began producing short promotional films for local clients. Bolstered by these new members and some disposable income, George was eager to expand his reach even further. In 1974, 34-year-old George decided to open a school at his home, the New American Church School. George seemed to obtain a license for the school in March of that year, perhaps because his wife, 27-year-old Sandra Fagley, worked for the State Department of Education. The validity of this license, however, would later be contested in court. With Sandra's background in education, George's invented credentials, and John Pollard, the filmmaker, as headmaster, the school had the appearance of a valid organization. George and Sandra managed to attract 14 students to their home school on Derry Street. They targeted local children and teens who had experienced difficulties learning at the nearby public school. George criticized the city's public schools as dangerous and violent, swaying several parents who were looking for an alternative. The new school claimed to charge $10,000 per year in tuition, perhaps to make their school seem more prestigious. In reality, they allowed nearly all of the students to enroll for free. George professed an eagerness to educate his students about the accumulated knowledge and experiences of mankind, whether or not they could pay. Few members of the community had any idea what kind of depraved education George had in mind. But the horrifying secrets of the Neo-American Church were about to come to light. Up next... Harrisburg residents learned the shocking truth about George Fagley's school. Listeners, I am thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for ParCast. It's the four-year anniversary of another fantastic podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, there's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Wardos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez. 
And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1974, 34-year-old George Fagley and his wife Sandra established a small private school out of their home in Harrisburg. They claimed to provide religious education modeled after the teachings of the Neo-American Church, a religious group founded by George in 1971. George was somewhat vague and secretive about the exact nature of his instruction, but he was a prolific writer, and one of his books in particular revealed a disturbing aspect of his psyche. The Sale of Lillian described the rape and torture of a young girl by supernatural entities. Besides its depraved descriptions, the book contained graphic illustrations depicting sexual activity. Some believed that this wasn't merely a work of fiction for George. It was a blueprint for how he intended to treat his young charges. Soon after opening his school, George began to sexually abuse several of the students. In his teachings, he suggested that sexual exploration was a sign of intelligence, inquisitiveness, and creativity. He told the girls he targeted that sexual pleasure would bring them closer to God. George further groomed the young girls by gifting some of them white jade rings to symbolize their bond to him. Predators like George often use such tactics to endear their victims and build trust. Psychologist Elizabeth L. Jeglick has written that abusers work to gain the trust of the intended victim by giving them small gifts, special attention, or sharing secrets. This makes the child feel special and gives them the belief that they have a caring relationship with the perpetrator. Because he was able to put himself in a position of trust, George continued abusing these girls for another year and a half. Eventually, it seems that some of the students reached a point where the secrets became too hard to keep. The mother of a student became suspicious about George's extra attention. Concerned for her daughter, she reported the troubling behavior to the authorities. It's not clear exactly when police initiated their investigation, but they likely began searching for evidence in early 1975. Soon after George was reported, police conducted a raid of the house on Derry Street. Inside, they discovered a library full of erotica and sexually explicit texts. They also found several gynecological examination tables. Two of the girls, aged 12 and 14, later testified that George performed sex acts on them while they lay on the table. Another, aged 11, offered a similarly disturbing report. 
George Fagley was charged with statutory rape. His wife, Sandra, also faced charges for corrupting the morals of a minor. Sandra received two years probation, but George was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. On January 8, 1976, George was escorted to a medium security correctional facility in Rockview, Pennsylvania to begin serving his sentence. It seemed as though George's short reign as the leader of a burgeoning religious cult was over. In reality, it was just starting. While in prison, George met with a psychiatrist named Thomas Lasky, who worked at the state hospital in Harrisburg. George used their sessions to enthrall Dr. Lasky with his prophecies and worldviews. George's powers of persuasion must have been incredibly powerful. Instead of treating George, Dr. Lasky fell under his spell. He and his wife, Tricia, joined George's cult. Dr. Lasky quickly became one of George's most trusted disciples. While George was trapped behind bars, he gave Dr. Lasky the task of recruiting new members to join their group. Over the first few months of 1976, he used his position at the hospital to draw a handful of young nurses and volunteers into the fold. He looked for young women who already showed an interest in things like astrology. Then he likely seduced them with readings of George's erotically charged horoscopes. One of Dr. Lasky's recruits, a young woman named Mary Klinger, eventually left her husband and moved with her two children into an apartment across from the house on Derry Street. As the cult swelled to about a dozen members, George kept in touch with them through frequent letters and correspondence. Their communications were sometimes a nuisance for prison officials. The New American Church published a magazine called Current Thinking. They tried to send the magazine to George and other inmates, but the prison superintendent must have found the material in the magazine inappropriate because he eventually banned the publication from entering the facility's walls. In March of 1976, Sandra sued the Rockview prison to lift the ban. But as she distracted prison officials with a battling court, George was plotting a sinister scheme. On July 2, 1976, after serving less than six months of his sentence, George Fagley disappeared from Rockville State Prison. His escape plan wasn't sophisticated, but it was effective. It began around noon that day, while George was out in the prison yard. When no one was looking, he scaled the 12-foot wall, crossed the barbed wire, and dropped to the other side. George then snuck to the facility's parking lot. There, one of his followers was waiting on a motorcycle. George joined him, and the pair sped away. By the time anyone had caught wind of George's escape, he was long gone. His followers, a group of about a dozen individuals, had suddenly vacated their home in Harrisburg and left Pennsylvania altogether. Authorities didn't know it, but the Neo-American Church had found a new home, a rustic farmhouse in Thornton, West Virginia, over 200 miles away. They called their secluded 100-acre hideaway Aaron Farm, likely named for the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest of Israel. While in West Virginia, George adopted the alias Daniel Bamberg and claimed to be a professor at West Virginia University. The group kept to themselves, growing crops and raising goats, cows, and horses. Neighbors found them a little odd. George's followers sometimes dressed in religious garments, including robes and skullcaps. One of the neighbors also happened to be the county prosecutor, John Waters. He recalled that George referred to himself as the master and demanded reverence from the others in the group. Waters also noted that this master never seemed to do chores around the farm. 
In an interview with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Mr. Waters said, I thought he was some kind of con artist who somehow got these girls to do his work for him, but looking back, he did seem to have some sort of hold over them. Still, the prosecutor never guessed that the group was being led by an escaped fugitive, nor did he realize that the group regularly engaged in ritual sex orgies and possibly even animal sacrifices. George's followers were happy to do anything to serve him. After drawing his followers in with promises of sexual ecstasy, some say that George kept them in line with threats of beatings if they doubted or disobeyed him. He even convinced his followers that he had the power to see the future. He discouraged anyone from leaving the compound by warning them that doomsday was approaching. He told them that the West Coast would soon break away from the United States causing a great tidal wave to wash over the country. They would only remain safe if they stayed with him in the West Virginia mountains above sea level. The church members might have escaped attention and gone on living that way for years, if not for the kids living on the farm. During this period, George fathered children with his wife, Sandra, and one of his followers, hospital nurse Mary Klinger. But Mary Klinger also had two other children from her previous marriage, who lived with her on the West Virginia compound, despite objections from their father. Mary's ex-husband, Thomas, was desperate to regain custody of his children. He'd been searching for them ever since they disappeared from Harrisburg two years earlier. But he caught a break. Somehow, he got a hint about the group's whereabouts. Mary may have allowed Thomas to speak with the children over the phone, which gave him the clues he needed. Because in September of 1978, Thomas tracked the church down, and he immediately alerted the authorities. Police quickly made their way to the farmhouse. There, they encountered resistance. Local news reports said that women at the commune cried when they took George away. But they couldn't stop the police from arresting their master. Two years after escaping from a Pennsylvania prison, 38-year-old George Fagley was back in custody. After arresting George, police took him to the nearby Taylor County Jail in West Virginia. There, he awaited extradition to Pennsylvania. In the meantime, authorities removed Mary Klinger's children from the West Virginia compound and returned them to their father's custody. The master's followers were left rudderless. But George Fagley was an intelligent, cunning leader. He wasn't going to give up his freedom without a fight. While detained at a small jail in Taylor County, George met a fellow inmate, 22-year-old James Lee Gilbert. James was serving a short six-month sentence for a petty larceny conviction. He was permitted to leave the jail each day to go to his job at a local gas station as part of a work release program. And it wasn't long before George Fagley plotted a way to take advantage of the younger man's freedom. Over the next few weeks, George beguiled James with his charm. James fell under the same hypnotic spell as George's other followers. George likely regaled the 22-year-old with stories about the sexual rituals he engaged in with the women at the compound. He promised that James could also participate in these sex orgies if he cooperated. James was intrigued and quickly agreed to conspire with George to escape custody. The scheme unfolded a little after midnight on October 16, 1978. Three anonymous callers contacted the county jail to report emergencies. One woman called from a payphone to report a car crash. Another reported a burglary at a diner. A third call reported a man flashing a gun. Officers raced to the scenes of these various emergencies, only to realize that they were all phony reports. 
They were part of a plan to draw the officers away from the jail so that only one officer, Clyde Shuttlesworth, remained to guard the inmates. Around 1 a.m., James Gilbert returned from his work detail. Instead of going back to his cell, he pulled a gun on Shuttlesworth. James gagged the officer, tied him up. James then released George, and the two men fled the jail together. Officers returned to the jail to find Shuttlesworth bound and gagged. The authorities raced to Aaron Farm in search of the fugitives, but they found the grounds empty. Once again, the group had fled, and in a hurry, Reportedly, the lights in the house were lit and a radio was still playing, but George wouldn't be a free man for long. Up next, things take a deadly turn. Now back to the story. On October 16, 1978, 38-year-old George Fagley, leader of the Neo-American Church, escaped from prison a second time. He did it with the aid of his newest convert, 22-year-old James Gilbert. For several weeks, there was no sign of George or his flock. But Thomas Klinger, the ex-husband of one of George's followers, soon received a tragic reminder that the cult was still active. On November 25, 1978, Thomas's 11-year-old daughter was abducted from a restaurant owned by her grandparents in Herndon, Pennsylvania. Thomas Klinger must have been horrified. He knew that his ex-wife and her abusive cult were responsible, but he was powerless to stop them. He was clueless as to where they'd gone, and he shuddered to think what might happen to them under Fagley's gaze. After snatching the girl in Pennsylvania, the group went underground once again. George Fagley had found a new hideout more than 500 miles away, this time at a farm in northeastern Tennessee. They remained there for a few months, but at some point, one of the group's members turned against George. We're not sure what caused the rift, but they informed the FBI of the cult's location. George and James Gilbert were recaptured in February 1979. Mary Klinger was spotted among the group when police arrived to arrest George, but unfortunately, they didn't take her into custody, perhaps because they lacked the proper warrant. When they returned the next day, she was gone. George Fagley was taken back to prison. His latest recruit, James Gilbert, pled guilty to helping George escape and was sentenced to one to five years in prison. George also pled guilty for his escape, and two years were added to his original prison sentence. He would now have to serve at least 12 years, likely more. This time, he was transferred to a maximum security facility in Greaterford, Pennsylvania. After engineering two prison escapes, George wasted no time planning a third. Around 1980, prison officials heard rumors that George's followers had crafted a type of homemade helicopter. They planned to airlift George off prison grounds. In response, prison officials transferred George yet again, this time to Western Penitentiary outside Pittsburgh. In 1981, officials searched 41-year-old George's cell and discovered he had hidden a hand-drawn map of the prison facility. The guards confiscated the map and placed George in restricted housing. George's followers, meanwhile, kept their faith. They set up a new commune near the prison, waiting for George's release. Residents noted their odd behavior, describing them as hippies with old-fashioned hair and clothing. Many wore matching medallions around their necks with a symbol resembling the Iron Cross. Neighbors spotted at least five children and teens on the property. Some expressed concern that these minors didn't seem to have appropriate clothing, and none went to school. They grew skilled at avoiding the attention. 
often by moving locations at a moment's notice. They seem to own or rent several more remote properties in the surrounding areas, traveling between them as needed. They survived by pooling resources, with a few members working at Greene County Memorial Hospital, some working odd jobs, and others receiving welfare. After a while, George Fegley's name faded from the headlines. His followers lived quietly, evading scrutiny, waiting for their leader to come back to them. George still had years, possibly decades, left in his sentence. But his devotees were impatient for his return. They once again hatched a new scheme to be reunited with the master, only this time, their plan turned deadly. In 1983, authorities released James Gilbert after serving his sentence. Shortly after, James joined the other followers at their compound outside of Pittsburgh. As soon as James returned, he and several other members began contemplating how to stage yet another prison break. It's unclear if there were any direct orders from George, as no records remain. However, we do know that George was in contact with his followers, and a plan started coming together at the start of the new year. On January 5, 1983, an unidentified man paid a visit to the local State Department of Environmental Resources. There, he asked officials if he could obtain maps of sewer lines within the vicinity of the prison. Not thinking anything of it, the officials gave him what he wanted. Not long after that, some members of the group were spotted purchasing chisels and helmet lamps from local stores. Then, three months later, in April 1983, police caught 27-year-old James Gilbert and another cult member, 26-year-old Laura Seligman, exploring a sewer pipe not far from the prison. To avoid suspicion, Laura told the officers that they enjoyed rummaging for discarded bottle caps and rare coins in the water. Police asked the pair to leave the area, and they obeyed. But it wasn't the last time they'd go exploring the sewers. At around 4 a.m. on Monday, August 1st, 1983, cult members drove James and Laura to the sewer entrance, not far from Western Penitentiary. The pair made their way inside. They came prepared with several pieces of equipment, carrying shovels, ropes, crowbars, and battery packs with them. James and Laura crawled through the sewer pipes until they reached an area just near the prison's corner. They seemed ready to tunnel their way into the prison where 43-year-old George Fagley waited. But they faced an unforeseen obstacle. As they crawled through the pipes that morning, a rainstorm hit the city. Water flooded into the sewers. James and Laura were trapped in the pipes with nowhere to go. The water soon overpowered them. Both James Gilbert and Laura Seligman drowned. Their bodies were swept away by the water current and were later discovered floating in the Ohio River. In initial reports, police assumed that the two were workers or urban scavengers who enjoyed exploring caves and tunnels, but they found an odd clue on Laura Seligman's body that pointed to something stranger. She was wearing a medallion around her neck that resembled a German iron cross, just like the other women in George Fagley's group. Once police made the connection to the cult, they also realized the significance of James Gilbert's identity. After linking the dead man to George Fagley's 1978 jail escape, the authorities recognized that they had uncovered a bizarre, elaborate conspiracy to free George from prison. Prison officials went on high alert. A week after the discovery of the bodies, George Fagley was transferred again to a state correctional facility in Huntington, Pennsylvania, about 100 miles east of Pittsburgh. 
Meanwhile, his followers became the target of a new police inquiry. Prison officials had recently confiscated pornographic pictures from George's cell, featuring women who had visited George Fagley in prison. Some of the pictures the women attempted to give George were of children. Children and youth services sought to remove any children from the cult's headquarters. So officials drove to the group's last known place of residence, a farmhouse in Mariana, Pennsylvania. They found the house abandoned. George's followers had fled. The group remained in hiding for the next three months. Then they resurfaced in Harrisburg. The cult had returned to the house on Derry Street, where George Fagley had first established the Neo-American Church in 1971. As soon as the police discovered their location, authorities raided the house. They took the children into custody, including the daughter of Marion Thomas Klinger, who had been abducted from her grandparents' care five years before. When police searched the premises, what they found horrified them. They discovered dozens of sexually explicit photographs of the children, a sex manual thought to be used to teach the minors how to perform sexual acts, and a sexual performance chart. All the children were placed into foster care. George's wife, Sandra Fagley, and two other mothers in the cult were charged with sexual abuse of children, corruption of minors, and criminal conspiracy. They were held in the Washington County Jail under a $50,000 bond. In August of 1984, the women reached a plea deal, pleading guilty to the charge of corrupting minors. In a hearing on September 21, 1984, they were sentenced to a term of 6 to 23 months in the county jail. They were released soon after sentencing due to time already served while awaiting the hearing. After several key figures in the cult were convicted, the followers of the new American church gradually dispersed. But George Fagley's core devotees remained loyal and continued to serve his perverted interests. Once Sandra Fagley got out of jail in the fall of 1984, she ran a boarding house at the Derry Street home where the cult had once thrived. George Fagley was in prison, but he kept in touch with his wife through regular phone calls. In 1994, details emerged of a new sexual abuse scandal perpetrated by the couple. Apparently, Sandra had a 14-year-old girl living with her, the daughter of another cult member. Around this time, Sandra engaged in phone sex with George Fagley, while performing sex acts with the 14-year-old girl and another man, all at George's direction. George, Sandra, and the girl's mother all faced new charges. George was found guilty, and his prison sentence was extended. Ultimately, George Fagley remained in prison for over 30 years. In August of 2008, 68-year-old George Fagley completed his sentence. He returned to his wife and home on Derry Street. His release was met with dread by many members of the community, especially some of his former victims. One of the women told journalists, he's not a man who should be out with society. He's mentally unstable, psychotic. Although some members of the community staged protests around his home, objecting to his release, there was little they could do to stop it. In response, one of George's neighbors founded a new program called Angels on a Mission, a group aimed at educating parents and children on how to protect themselves from local sex offenders. 
Not all convicted sex offenders necessarily pose a high risk to the community. Research suggests that elderly sex offenders present a lower risk for reoffending than others. A 2002 study from Robert Carl Hansen found that just 3.8% of sexual offenders over the age of 60 reoffended, compared with a 17.5% overall recidivism rate. This lower rate of reoffending may be due to a decreased sex drive among older populations. However, as researchers Hannah Bose and Nicole Westmarland note in their paper, Older Sex Offenders, Managing Risk in the Community from a Policing Perspective, sexual offending has long been linked to power, control, anger, and violence, rather than specifically or solely to sexual desire. When George got out of prison, he may not have presented an immediate physical danger to others, but he showed no sign of a changed attitude concerning sexual behavior. In his final years, he and his wife Sandra ran a website together where they continued to promote the views of the new American church. Among other things, they railed against the criminal justice system, decrying laws against sexually based offenses. One post under George's old alias, G.G. Stockte, states, there is nothing injurious to sexuality. It's good and pleasant, not an evil. Children exposed to it are simply not injured. Clearly, George Fagley had not atoned for the pain and suffering he had inflicted on innocent children. He held on to his deviant beliefs until the end. But Harrisburg didn't have to endure his presence for long. On April 13, 2009, 68-year-old George Fagley died. His passing couldn't erase the harm he'd caused, but it marked an official end to the cult that perpetrated the abuse. The Fagley's website soon became defunct. Its members fell silent. Harrisburg residents could finally move on from the sordid history of George Fagley. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes weekly. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.